If you have a Bible this morning, uh, open with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you, do, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles there for you at that back table. Grab one of those. You can get up right now, grab one if you want one. If you need to keep it, you're welcome to it. We are currently in uh, a study, a series through the Gospel of Luke, these stories in the Gospel of Luke. And, and this book is really a book about God's Spirit bringing about God's kingdom through the person and work of Christ. So that's, you'll, you'll get these two themes repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Luke as we spend our time there. The, the work of God's Spirit bringing about God's kingdom through the person and the work of Jesus. These two themes are not only in the, in the Gospel of Luke, but as, as some of you may know, that um, the book of Acts is really a, a continuation or a sequel to the book of Luke. And Luke just carries these two themes uh, throughout both of those books. And in fact, a lot of people will even refer to the book of Acts as the books of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's what we see in the book is God's Spirit working to bring about His kingdom through the stories of the Apostles. So Luke, if you don't know, he is a, Luke is a Gentile doctor. He's a physician. Luke was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he states here his purpose very clearly at the beginning of, of both of these books, both at the beginning of Luke and the sequel, the book of Acts. I'll read these for us. I'll begin in Luke chapter 1. You don't have to read with me. You're welcome to it, but we're going to jump into 4 here in a second. Luke begins his gospel by saying this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, will it seem good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And there's some, there's some question as to whether Theophilus is, is a person or, or sort of God's people in general. The word Theophilus literally means God lover. So he's writing to this God lover, and he's saying, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he had, he, he had spent this time with Paul. He, he was a careful thinker and writer, and he wanted to get down exactly what had happened as best as he could, even though a lot of other people had been telling the story, so that this God lover would have certainty that these things happened. And at the, book, uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, he does something very similar. He says, in this first book, O Theophilus, I, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So Luke is a man of of order, Luke is a man of detail, and you'll realize this as we read through the Gospel of Luke. He's, I mean, he picks up on all these very subtle nuances and details, and he begins to paint this story in a very beautiful and vivid way. So he's a man of science, a man of learning, and he's writing carefully to this God lover to prove to him that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He wants this God lover to know that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and that through him the Spirit of God would have bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, our passage this morning is an important one because this is how Luke uh, chooses to begin the story of Jesus' public ministry. Let me read for us from Luke chapter 4. I'll start in verse 16. Picking nearly right back where we left off from last week. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is his hometown. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so Jesus unrolled the scroll and he he found the place where it was written, and then quoting from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And when, he, when he's sitting down, it's actually sort of the opposite of the way we do it here, where, where you all sit as someone else teaches. Here, there, it was the opposite. That the person teaching would sit down, everyone else would be standing around him. So Jesus sits down to teach, and he says, The eyes of all in the synagogue, they were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it says, and all spoke well of him in that moment. And they, they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? Right? We know this kid. But Jesus, knowing all things, he says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. He quotes in this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here now in your hometown. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And he says, a great famine came over all the land of Israel, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel, too, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum, the Syrian. And then it says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down to his death. But passing through their midst, he went away. God, speak to us this morning. God, teach us about the way that Luke presents this story of you beginning your ministry and what that means for us today. God, remind us of the good news. God, remind us of your grace in our lives. God, we thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is happening in this story, right? As you're reading the story, it's, it, you're sort of puzzled. I'm, I'm puzzled as I'm reading it going, now, what, why this such like serious and sudden turn among these people in the synagogue. And there's actually, a, there's a gap here, so to give you a little bit of background, there's a gap between the story we read last week, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and the story that Luke gives today. He, he says, he gives a few verses here, uh, Luke 14 and 15, he says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, there's that theme again. So Jesus was in the wilderness, he was being tempted by the devil, he withstood the temptation, He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is sort of his home region. And a report about him went through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So so word was getting around, right? Word was getting around about Jesus. So this hometown boy made good. They they, they had heard his teaching. They had heard about his graciousness. It doesn't say, the text doesn't say specifically, but maybe they had heard about miracles that he had performed. 
But word spread about this man, Jesus. And it says the word was good, right? It says that he was glorified by all. And then you get this story, the, the first story that Luke records about Jesus' public, public ministry. And it's a little confusing. It sort of assumes on the part of a reader a lot of prior knowledge about these stories that he is quoting, about even the, the synagogue in a sense. This seems very ordinary. This is Jesus at the synagogue on the Sabbath in his hometown. Brandy and I actually had the uh, privilege, uh, along with Miss Judy, others have been since then, uh, to go to Israel. And we actually went to Nazareth. I think I have a picture here uh, that we can put up. Don't you just love having a, a projector now? It's great. So, so this, is, uh, this is actually, this is a picture I took actually in Nazareth of uh, sort of um, reconstructed ancient synagogue. So this is it. It's a very, it's a very simple structure. It's a very, it's a relatively small structure. Structure and this usually there's seats around the perimeter. This was used for weekly worship on the Sabbath, but it was used for all kinds of things. This was both a, both the place of religious worship as well as uh, sort of community events and gatherings. It was sort of a, a religious community hall, right? These were built in towns by the Jews as sort of gathering places, as places to bring cohesiveness to their community. This was a place of education. This was a place to hear about community news and events. This was a place where, where legal disputes were uh, settled and worked out. And, of course, a place of community worship on the Sabbath. And Sabbath worship there at the synagogue was very uh, detailed and specific, and every, the same thing happened week in and week out. And, and I'll read you a little bit of how this situation, how this worship service would unfold. They would begin their service by reading uh, from one of the psalms, usually one of the psalms from Psalm 145 to 150. And then they would recite this uh, Shema, which begins like this. Many of you know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God. The Lord is one and then they would recite these 18 benedictions, these prayers. They would recite in sequence, one after the other. They would do this every week, and then came the reading of Scripture. And so one of the elders or one of the officers of the synagogue, he would go over um, to the, they, had, they kept this art in the synagogue where the Scriptures were in rolls, in ancient scrolls. He would take one of those out. He would read from the Torah. He would put the Torah back. He would take something from the prophets, and then he would read, and then he would pass it around to the guys there, and each one would sort of take a turn and read and maybe even sit down and teach a little bit on the passage that was just read. So that's sort of the situation that's going on. And once that was done, they would, they would say these prayers, and they would end with a blessing, something very similar to what we do many, many weeks at our church. It says this, this is the, an, a blessing from Aaron, and each time they would say it, the church would respond with, Amen. So let, let's try this, right? I'm going to say something, and you're going to respond with, amen. amen, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And that's how they would end their service each week. Very, very typical, very ordinary, very predictable. And so there is Jesus as he would be at any time that he was in town. He was there on the Sabbath. He was at the synagogue. Scripture was read, and the time came for, for him to read his part. It was handed to him, and he opens it up. And, and the passage before him is this passage from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
He's anointed me to proclaim this good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He leaves his section. He rolls up his scroll. He hands it to the next guy. And then he delivers this one-sentence sermon, right? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That's all he says. He reads this prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, this is really about me. And even though there were some who were saying, isn't this Joseph's son, right, the carpenter's son? Still, they loved it. They loved it. Right? They, were, they were amazed at his graciousness. They were, they were thinking, yes, this is, the guy, this is the guy that we need. Right? This is the guy that we want. But Jesus could read their hearts like Jesus can read our hearts. He, he read their hearts, and he was not there for the praise or approval of these men. Instead, he was there to proclaim this news. He says, I have good news for what? The poor. He came to preach the hard words of the good news. Captives need to be set free. The blind need sight. The oppressed need liberty. And Jesus um, says at that moment, this is all about me. Right in front of you guys, this scripture has been fulfilled. I, I am the son of God. I am the anointed one. I am the one with the spirit of God. I am the one coming with this good news to proclaim to the poor. This is essentially what we try to do each week, right? We try to read the scripture and then we say, this is about Jesus. That's what we're doing here. And that's what Jesus is doing. He opens us up. He says, this passage is about me. But Jesus knew their hearts. And he knew what they were waiting for. He even anticipates it, right? It, it, it kind of shifts in the story and you're kind of wondering what's going on. But he says, now you will quote to me, right? I know what you're really after, people. You're going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which is a way of saying, prove it, Jesus. Prove who you are, right? Do you really have the power? And he says, you know what? <clears throat> You're going to reject me, the anointed one of God, just like your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers rejected all the prophets that he sent to you. They wanted a miracle right? They wanted a man of power. They wanted, they wanted the miracle of the blind seeing. They wanted the freedom from the Roman oppression that they were experiencing as a nation. They wanted the Lord's favor, right? They wanted their enemies crushed. But they did not want to be confronted with the hard words of repentance and their desperate need of grace. They didn't want that, right? And here's where the story turns. Jesus tells them these two short stories from the Old Testament uh, that they would know very well. And it's interesting in this moment that, that he's got their attention. In fact, he's even got their approval in this moment. And he turns it very quickly and he says, let me tell you a couple of stories. I know you want me to prove it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be rejected in my hometown, just like all the other prophets were rejected in Israel. And he doesn't tell them a story about how bad their enemies are, Right? He tells them a story about one of the lowest points in the history of Israel. A time in Israel of, of great 
rebellion, a time when Ahab, who was a, a wicked and idolatrous king, when he was ruling over Israel, Jesus knew that their hearts were burning with a sort of ethnic and nationalistic pride. And he says, in effect, remember the most embarrassing moment of your history? Let's talk about that. Do you remember the most embarrassing moment in your history? Do you remember when Elijah the prophet came? And even though there were countless widows in Israel, Elijah went to this woman in Zarephath, a Gentile widow. Completely unlike you, completely unlike your people, somewhat unclean, and yet she received God's anointing. God's anointed. And she was blessed. He says, do you remember Elisha? He said, this great story of Elisha, he too, there was much need in Israel. He went to Naaman, rich Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army, right? Enemies to Israel. Elisha went to Naaman, though there was much need in Israel. And he healed him of leprosy. God's goodness and God's favor and God's blessing goes far beyond your ethnic or nationalistic boundaries. Instead, it flows to those who understand their desperate need of grace. He's telling them, in effect, you're more desperate than you think you are. And you know what? You can't presume on God's goodness. God's, God's favor is for those who are desperate for it. God's, this good news, he says, is for who? The poor. Those who know they need it. It's for the outsiders. Before enjoying this blessings of God's favor, you have to confront your own blindness, your own poverty, your own, your own blindness and captivity. We see this story in 1 Kings 17. Here's the story. I'll, I'll lay it out for you. In 1 Kings 17, Elisha is there, Elijah is there. There's this widow uh, in a town called Zarephath, and she's, there's a famine in the land, and she's literally starving to death. And she has a son. She's all alone. She has this little son. And she meets Elijah on the road, and Elijah's sort of asking her what's going on. And she says, I just have this you know, little pinch of flour and this few drops of oil, and I'm going uh, to make our last meal together for me and my son, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And you know how Elijah responds to her? How about you make me a cake instead? That's a better idea. I know you just have this little pinch of flour and just this little bit of oil, and I know you're literally on the verge of death. Bake me a cake instead. And she does it. She does it. She says, the Lord will provide for you. Trust him. She makes Elijah this cake, and then she realizes that never again does her black bag of flour run out. Never again does her jar of oil run out. He says, in effect, you're desperate, but you're not desperate enough. You're not desperate enough. Give everything. She didn't have hardly anything to give, right? And in that moment, Elijah comes there and he says, you're not desperate enough. I want you to give everything. I want you to come empty-handed to receive God's blessing. 
and her flower was never spent and her jar was never empty. The Lord showed his favor upon her. The story of Naaman is, it has some similarities, but there's some sharp contrast to Naaman is a, a very rich man, a very powerful man. He's a leader of the Syrian army, but he's also a man plagued with leprosy. And this little slave girl that's around, she tells him, you know, you should go see the prophet of God and he can heal you. And he was desperate. And so he takes his silver and he takes his gold and he takes his clothes and he takes his, this letter from the king of Syria. And he actually first goes and visits the king of Israel and the king of Israel sort of thinks it's a trap and he realizes he's powerless to heal this man and he sends him away and on the way he meets Elisha. And Elisha says, if you want to be healed, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be completely restored. That's all you got to do. Just go to the Jordan and wash and you will be healed. And he's thinking, is this a joke? Right? How, how dare you? How, how dare you make fun? You, you see me suffering. You've, I've been on this journey. I am here with my, with my money, with my army, with my servants, with all my gold. And you just want me to dip in the water. And Elisha is saying, in effect, you think you can buy your way into healing and you can't. What God wants from you is not your gold. What God wants from you is not your, your power or your relationships. What he wants is your utter, desperate humility. Would you, Naaman, would you, this rich man, do something as silly, as undignified as just dipping in the water? And you know what? Naaman was desperate. And he did it. And it says immediately his skin was restored. And it was like, it was like the skin of a baby what the scripture says. And when those men in the synagogue heard Jesus tell these two stories, it says they just leaped up, they wanted to grab this man, throw him off the cliff to his death. That's how they responded. They weren't even, they did, in the middle of the worship service, this was so overwhelming to them, they could not in this moment have their spiritual self-sufficiency called into question. Or threatened by Jesus. But Jesus confronts them directly. One commentator kind of works through these words. He talks about this, this word that Jesus is using here. I've got good news for the poor. It, it's, both, it's both physical and spiritual, right? It's not either or, it's a both and. So the word can cover every kind of poverty. But the emphasis here is on this conscious, moral, spiritual poverty. Which is often the lot of the financially poor. Because the rich are less likely to realize their desperation, to realize their need. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. He talks about this word captives or prisoners. He says this word means a kind of spiritual bondage. It's this idea of even a prisoner of war. And Luke will use this word throughout his gospel to refer to a spiritual bondage, bondage to money, bondage to Satan, bondage to guilt, bondage to sensuality, bondage to the world in general, bondage to the enemy. When Jesus uses this word oppressed, it literally means broken in pieces. 
The good news is for those who are broken in pieces. But who wants to admit that they're broken in pieces? He says it's for the poor, it's for the prisoner, it's for the oppressed, it's for the broken. And what we see here is how quick their hearts can turn and harden against Jesus. They go from thinking, this guy's a pretty great teacher, he's, he's eloquent, he's got authority and power, to we have to throw this man off the cliff because what he's doing is he's confronting us with the uncomfortable truth of our own desperation, of our own need, and of our own poverty. These were good religious Jews here at a worship service on the Sabbath, right? One writer says there's no inherent virtue in being poor or being oppressed or in bondage, but these experiences typically correspond and foster a certain condition of the heart and soul. It's when we recognize our brokenness and our bondage and our blindness that the gospel meets us right there. We have to come to terms with our spiritual poverty, our spiritual inability. Have you? Have you come face to face with your desperation? I remember even for me, maybe some of you guys have heard uh, a little bit of the story, but uh, you know, when I was, I grew up in the church, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church in a small town in Oklahoma, and they would have, they would have those revival meetings. You guys remember those? They'd get a speaker to come in and, you know, uh, fire and brimstone for a week, and everybody would walk the aisle, and they'd baptize a whole load of them and send them on their way, right? And I was one of those kids, and when I was young, I thought, I'm hearing about heaven and hell, and I certainly know I want to avoid hell, and heaven doesn't sound too bad either. And so I walked the front, and I told them I wanted to be a Christian, and I was baptized a few weeks later. And I don't want to, I don't want to discount that experience that I had when I was 10 years old. I think, I, I think, I mean, I think God's been working on me since before the foundation of the world, and that was just one more moment. But it wasn't until I was in high school that I really came to terms with this idea. It wasn't just that in my mind I was choosing heaven over hell. It was that I came confronted with my own spiritual poverty, my own sin. I just sort of realized internally how desperate I was. I knew I couldn't save myself. I'd been trying my whole life and I couldn't do it. I was never good enough. I was always racked with guilt. I was always insecure and overwhelmed. I realized this isn't something I can fix on my own. I was confronted with my spiritual poverty. And at the same time, I was confronted with God's grace and his love, his pursuit of me, his mercy in my life. And I was transformed. Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. To the poor. Have you masked or forgotten or ignored your own poverty? Or have you considered it? It's interesting here at the end that Jesus actually stops mid-sentence when he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant. He leaves off this last line and to proclaim the day of uh, the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that part. That part's there. That's the next line in the passage in Isaiah. But instead, Jesus just reads it. He's, gonna, he's there to set the blind, uh, give them sight, to set the captives free. He's got good news for the poor. Then he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back. And everybody was waiting for him to say this last line, and he didn't say it. He left off the line and to proclaim the day of vengeance 
of our God. Vengeance wasn't coming for them. And it wasn't coming for their enemies. In Christ, this is what we read before in 2 Corinthians, in Christ, God came for his enemies, but he came to save them. In Christ, the vengeance that was due, God's enemies was absorbed instead by his son. He got the vengeance. We got the reward. The punishment due each of us was instead doled out on him. He didn't come with a message of vengeance for them. He came to take the vengeance himself and to bring good news to, who, to those who understood just how poor and desperate they were without this news. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, this is what we read this morning, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, a man who knew no sin, a man who was perfect. He made him to be sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How many of us even have taken three seconds and considered that line, that we might become the righteousness of God? Jesus is there with God's vengeance on his back, with his vengeance through his hands and through his feet. And instead he says, "What for, for you, I've got a reward. For my enemies, I now give freedom. 